Hi, thanks for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. We are a place where everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. We are a community of people who believe in God and truly believe that he will do things in the Bay Area. So our hope this week is that you would be able to connect with him and hear what God has to tell you. So enjoy the rest of this message. Good morning. I am happy to be here. I'm happy that you are here. I'm happy that we're here together because as Eugene said, we are talking about happiness. We are in week two of our series, Pursuit of Happiness. And I thought we might start by revisiting some of the big ideas from week one. The first is we're studying the book of Philippians. There's four chapters in the book of Philippians. There's four weeks in this series. Might be really neat if you went ahead and read through that short but impactful bit of scripture. In the book of Philippians, one of the predominant ideas is joy. And that's helping us think about how God is the most joyful being in all of the universe. In fact, joy was his idea. He invented it. And that's something that we're kind of thinking about that is driving this series. And then the other thing we're kind of doing in this series is that in, at least in some of the weeks, we're taking a look at some of the science around the, the research on human happiness. What's the science of human happiness? How does it guide us? And in week one, we saw some research that suggested only about 10% of your happiness is derived from your current circumstances. And that suggests to us that there's a deeper kind of happiness quite unrelated to your current circumstances. And that's sort of what we're talking about in this series. Today, we'll be looking at a body of literature that suggests that the number one predictor of your level of happiness is the quality and quantity of your close relationships. Let me say that again, because it's really important. There's a huge body of literature that suggests the number one predictor of your happiness level has to do with the quality and quantity of your personal close relationships. That's the number one thing that will suggest happiness in your life. In fact, the body of literature around this idea is so big, I couldn't even pick out a study or a quote. There's just study after study after study that demonstrates that close relationships are the best predictor of happiness that we have uh, in the science around um, human happiness. So I want you to hang on to this idea. We're gonna revisit it later, but relationships are the best predictor of your happiness. Now, Philippians chapter two is a passage about humility, and I'll be suggesting that in your pursuit of happiness, humility will be a necessary component that if you become a more humble person, you will in fact also become a happier person. Or if you start asking Jesus, Jesus, will you teach me to be a humble person, that he would in the process also make you a happier person. And that is not least because humility is such a boost to our close relationships. No one, no one wants to be in a close relationship with somebody who is not humble, or at least that's what my wife keeps telling me. So in this kind of study around humility, I want to give you a, a roadmap of where we are going, what we're going to talk about. First, I want to talk about the year of our Lord, 1995. And then I want to talk about favorite songs. And then I want to talk about Plato. And then finally, I want to talk about a bet that I placed on the 2015 Kansas City Royals. Now, did that seem clear and 
intuitive. Uh, if it wasn't clear to you, my hope is that by the end of this sermon, it might be. That's what I'm aiming for. The best I can do is that it might be clear by the end. So let's jump in and talk about the year of our Lord, 1995. 1995 will go down as the year in human history that was the tipping point for the commercialization of the internet. Before that, the internet was used in scientific and academic circles. And in 1995, the World Wide Web was complete and it was being adopted for use in households. And once the dominant use of the internet was private, we all know that the number one use of the internet was to save, categorize, and share embarrassing and humiliating moments. This was the number one use of the internet. I'm sure it's the number one use of the internet in your life. All the time people forward me funny pictures or funny videos, fail videos, and I laugh at them and I send them along to my friends. This is one of the number one uses of the internet. We all know the internet to be kind of a timeless archive of human humiliation. Uh, allow me but two examples just from this year. The first is from a new source called BuzzFeed. Thank you, BuzzFeed, for all that you do. If you're not familiar with BuzzFeed, it's sort of a crowdsourced and quirky news media. It's, it's real interesting. You'll see when we see it here in a minute. But they published an article called The 18 Dumbest Things People Really Said So Far This Year, and it was only in January of this year. And one of the entries on this list had to do with one user who posted this picture and said, why does the sun look like a ceiling light? And then the first comment was also this same user who said, I just realized the reflection from my window is showing and it actually is a ceiling light. <laughs> and then the next comment was that same user who said, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. <laughs> Doesn't that just make you happy? Not like in the deep kind of humility-driven happiness we're talking about, but happy nonetheless. And my second example of how the internet kind of just is an archive of humiliation is about a little bit more sensitive of a topic. It's about the Super Bowl parade, uh, the victory parade for the Super Bowl just this year. Now, full disclosure, I am from Kansas City. I am a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan, and I am not mentioning this because my team beat your team. That is something a Patriots fan would do. Uh, now, the, the Kansas City teams in my lifetime have been so horrible that I want to publicly swear I will never, ever, ever, ever gloat about a Kansas City sports team. That's not why I'm mentioning this. I'm mentioning it because the parade was home to a really fantastic, humiliating moment that will forever be memorialized on the internet as part of the story around this Super Bowl parade. And I thought we might just watch the video and I'll narrate it as it goes. So let's check it out. There's all-world quarterback Pat Mahomes. He's throwing footballs into the crowd. He drops a dime, bounces it off the car. Boom! That guy runs into a parking meter. Now, I know it, I know it goes by really fast. So our tech team was up all night creating a slow-motion version so you can really savor what happens. Check it out. Here it goes. Off the car. Boom! Yes! Oh, man. What kind of horrible people are we enjoying that guy's pain. It seems like he would have been injured, but really he got to enjoy 15 minutes of fame. He was on the local news and he will go down in the lore around the parade uh, where the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Now, 
here is kind of the takeaway. Humility uh, and humiliation are kind of cousins, and we'll explore their relationship a little bit later, but here is the takeaway. Humility is coming for all of us, and our only choice really is whether or not we are going to cooperate with it. Absolutely every one of us has had a humiliating moment of that kind. We can relate to it, and we just have to decide. When humility comes our way, how are we going to respond to it? Let's talk about favorite songs. The science around the human brain structure suggests that we are kind of made to love music, that music does something really unique and wonderful to the human brain because of the structure of the brain itself. In fact, studies have shown almost everybody can name a favorite song. Everybody has a song that they think of as, I just love it, I just love the melody. And that is because of the way our brain is structured. Music is magical to the human brain. I remember exactly where I was standing the first time I heard my favorite favorite song. Uh, It was in the spring of 1995, which I guess is a banner year for this sermon. I was a freshman in high school, and uh, I'd gone over to my friend Grant Chapin's house after school, and he put on a compact disc. If you don't know what that is, you can just Google it after the service. And we were listening to the music on the compact disc, and a song played, and from the very first note of the song, this song gripped me. I loved it from the very first note, and I remember walking around the halls of our high school for weeks, humming the melody before I knew anything about the song. And eventually, I learned that this song was called Only in Dreams by the band Weezer. Now, if you're not familiar with Weezer, they are of a genre called nerd rock, Uh, And they sing about sweaters, and they've been doing it for almost 30 years. They're a really fantastic band. And that particular song is easily the song I've listened to the most in my life. That particular album that you saw the cover of, that's easily the album I have listened to most in my life. Uh, And what's funny is I love this album so much that in college I swore an oath to myself that I would not consider marrying someone unless Weezer was their favorite band. That was kind of my number one deal-breaking issue at the time. And then after a few experiments in dating, I realized that was a terrible policy. Uh, Little did I know, thousands of miles away and 15 years before I met her, my future wife Katie was also swearing an oath to herself that she would not marry someone unless Weezer was their favorite band. No kidding. And on our first date, we talked about how this was kind of a deal breaker thing for us, but it was a real silly thing and we've abandoned it now. We have that level of compatibility in our lives. And I've always attributed the fact that we have not had one fight in our 10 years of marriage to this level of compatibility. Every time we almost have a fight, we just turn on Weezer. And if that doesn't work, we just increase the volume until we can't hear each other. That fixes it every time. I highly recommend it. That's a little bit about my favorite song. In our passage today, it seems that the Apostle Paul has a favorite song. And if you aren't familiar with Paul, when we first meet him in the story of the Bible, it is his job to hunt down and dissuade or even murder Christians, followers of Jesus. But in the course of his life, he miraculously has a vision of Jesus and becomes a follower of Jesus himself. And then he goes on a series of journeys, eventually going from modern-day Turkey to modern-day France, planting churches, groups of followers of Jesus, and then writing letters back to them. So what we're studying today is Paul's letter to the church that he planted in the city of Philippi. He knows them well. He feels warmly towards them. And in what we call the second chapter of this letter, Paul quotes a song at length. He writes down every lyric of this song like he loves it as if it was his very favorite song. 
song. And I thought we might just read the entirety of this song because the Apostle Paul seems to have loved it so much. So Philippians chapter two, verse five through 11. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. This is a song about the humility of Jesus, and ultimately it's about the humility of the God we know in the Bible. And scholars tell us that this was an ancient song probably sung decades before Paul even heard it, and decades before he wrote it in this letter, people had gathered in homes and in synagogues and were singing this song about the humility of Jesus. It's a fantastic song. We can even imagine people, maybe like you and me, sitting in their homes, singing this song, this worship song about Jesus. Now, there's a fantastic book by the author John Dixon called Humilitas. It's a really fantastic read, and part of what he is doing in that book is taking a secular or non-spiritual look at what people could learn from the humility of Jesus. And he's especially studying this particular passage. And from this passage, John Dixon distills a certain definition of humility that I think is really interesting and fantastic. So here it is, John Dixon's definition of humility that he derives from this song in Philippians chapter two. He wrote this, humility is the noble choice to forego your status and deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. It is marked by a willingness to use your power in the service of others. And this is precisely what we see Jesus doing in this song that I'm describing as Paul's favorite song, that Jesus forgoes his status, his divine status as the son of God, and instead uses whatever power is available to him to serve you and I before he serves himself. Now, Dixon suggests that this Jesus kind of humility that he is defining here has three immediate implications for our lives, our lives that might develop into humility. And the first of these implications is this. This Jesus kind of humility represents a very dignified view of human beings. It assumes that every single human being on this planet, every single human being that has ever existed has some degree of influence and some degree of resources that they can use to serve others before themselves. It means that every single one of us, no matter what is going on in our lives, have influence and resource in some degree that we can use if we so choose to serve others before we serve ourselves. It's a very uh, dignified view of human beings that they have something within them that is always there that they can always use to bless someone else. Now, the second implication is that this is a choice. As I said, humiliation and humility are kind of cousins, but in the end, they, maybe not be, they may not be the same thing. And Dixon is suggesting humility is a choice. It's something you choose to do, to put someone else before yourself. Whereas humiliation is something that is happening to you against your will, that something embarrassing is happening, and maybe people are laughing at you, and that's humiliating. It, 
Uh, that is something that is different than humility. But God might use that humiliating moment to teach you some humility. But it's important to talk about this because sometimes in the church's history, it has used humiliation as a tactic all the time for its followers, that that might be a punishment for you if you did something wrong. The church might humiliate you publicly because it hoped that you might grow into a humble person, but we know now, just even talking about it, that seems so reprehensible. And one of the implications of this definition of humility is that you have to choose it. It isn't something that we can force upon you, that someone cannot force it upon me, even though a humiliating moment might find its way into my life. And the third and final kind of implication of this Jesus kind of humility is that it is intensely other-focused. Sometimes we might wrongly think that humility means thinking less of ourselves or thinking poorly of ourselves. And in our journey of humility, my journey towards humility or your journey towards humility, it might indeed be part of it to learn to think a little bit less of ourselves. But that isn't the end goal. The end goal of the Jesus kind of humility is to be focused on someone else's needs before your own and to serve them with whatever resources you have available to you. It is a very other-focused way of thinking about humility. Now, like any good song, Paul is providing an introduction. Maybe you've seen live music somewhere and the person who is about to sing a song, they will give an introduction to the song they are about to play about how the song was written or what it means to them or what kind of the hidden meaning of the song might be. Once my wife and I were in Golden Gate Park, we got to see the late, great Tom Petty, What a Legend. And he introduced a song by saying, we are about to play a song in a park in San Francisco, and then they played the song. And once we saw James Taylor in AT&T Park, what is now Oracle Park, and James Taylor introduced a song in the most folk singerish way I can imagine. He said, this song came to me when I was walking alone down a dirt road. And then he proceeded to sing the song Carolina, and it was a fantastic moment. And you could just imagine him starting to hum the melody walking along a dirt road. And in church, we'll do the same thing. Sometimes we introduce a song by saying, this is a song about God, how reliable he is, how steadfast he is, how he can carry you through anything, how he is a good father. And then we'll sing maybe the song, Good, Good Father, which we used to kind of sing a lot. Well, Paul is also providing an introduction to what seems to be his favorite song. And I thought I might just read that from Philippians uh, chapter two, verses three through five. He introduces the song by saying this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that is in Jesus Christ. And this simple passage represents for us kind of a fantastic checklist or a to-do list in growing in humility. The, these simple four things are really powerful things for us to do. Uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Regard others as more important than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but to the t interests of others and learn to think the way that Jesus thinks. This checklist of humility, if you were to do nothing else after this sermon, and if you just took these four things and after the service said, Jesus, would you teach me to do these four things? Then you would be well on your way to learning the Jesus kind of humility. But there's also, I think, a really impl interesting implication here about the way that Jesus thinks. And it goes kind of like this. 
If thinking of others as more important than yourself is the way that Jesus was thinking, and that kind of thinking led him to die on the cross for you and me, that means that Jesus went to the cross because he thought of you and I as more important than himself. You see, Christians believe that when Jesus died, somehow our sins died with him, and that when Jesus was resurrected, we were given access to a new kind of life. And that means that Jesus thought it was more important for you and I to experience forgiveness and new life than it was for him to retain his status and avoid this extreme kind of suffering on the cross. Sometimes we will talk about in church how God loves you, and we will talk about it so often that it will get kind of watered down, or we might forget what it means. But here in this introduction to Paul's favorite song, we get a real good glimpse into what it means that God loves you. He just thinks you are incredibly important. You are very important to God. That's part of what it means that he loves you. And it turns out that the God that we meet here in in this passage, the God that we know in the Bible, is indeed a very humble person. That's part of what we learn from this song that scholars call the Christ hymn, but which I've been referring to as Paul's favorite song. Now, let's talk about Plato. Who loves Plato? I love Plato. I think everybody loves Plato. Uh, my kids, Margot is four and Frankie is two. Frankie, my son, is two. I think they are in optimal Plato age. Margot has not reached the age where she has aged out of it. And Frankie has reached the age where he has stopped eating it. They they are in optimal Plato age, but they're also at an age where it is impossible to get them to put the lid back on to the container of Plato. And everyone has had that happen. When you first get the canister of Play-Doh, you open it up and you smell that fresh Play-Doh smell and you know that it is soft and malleable and ready to be formed. And then if you leave the lid off for a few days, it becomes dry and rigid and impossible to shape. This passage that we are studying today is a passage about a shape. It is recommending to us a particular shape for our lives. What does it mean for your life to have a shape? Well, the shape of your life are the primary characteristics and traits that define you. What what are the number one things that people think of when they think of you? That's the shape of your life. And this passage is recommending to us to have as our primary characteristic a certain shape. And the word for that shape is the word cruciform, the shape of the cross, to allow our lives to be formed in a cross-like shape is what that means. Now, interestingly, in ancient music, they had a very specific taste for how the song should be structured. And it turns out that in modern music, we also have a very specific preference for how songs are structured. We prefer songs that are structured around a rhyming scheme, A-A-B-B, A-B-A-B. We prefer songs that rhyme. In fact, if you wrote a song and it didn't rhyme and you showed it to someone, they would say, That's not a very good song. That's kind of the number one thing that we look for in songs. In the ancient world, they didn't care about rhyming at all. No, the prize structure in a song in the ancient world was symmetry. They wanted to hear and listen to a song that was perfectly symmetrical, and it turns out that the song we are studying from Philippians chapter two is perfectly symmetrical, and I thought to maybe grasp that, it might might help us to see all of it. So this is a look at Every line in this song, there are 19 lines there. You don't have to count them all. You can just trust me. And then in the first section, there are exactly nine lines. 
And then in the final section, there are exactly nine lines. And then the idea here with the symmetry of the song in the ancient world is that whatever exists in the center of the symmetrical structure would be the most important thing about the song. It would be the main idea of the song. And here in the song we are studying, that center thing is this phrase, even death on a cross. That is the main thing that we are to hear in this poem, this song that we think of as Paul's favorite song. This is a song about the humility of Jesus, and right at the heart of it is the cross. That means for us as followers of Jesus, we are to live a cruciform life of humility, and for us, that leads us right to the cross. And this is why Jesus was always saying things like this from Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Anyone who wants to follow me must pick up their cross daily. And you can imagine his disciples being very confused and thinking, Jesus, the cross is where you die. This, that's where people die. Are you saying you want us to die every day? And you can imagine Jesus saying, that is very close to what I am hoping for you. And the truth is for me that the part of me that thinks of myself as overly important needs to die every day. And the part of me that has trouble looking towards other people's interests before my own, that part of me needs to die a little bit every day. The part of me that resists thinking like Jesus needs to die a little bit every day. That is what is going to mean for us to live a cruciform shaped life. The question is how do we become someone who is living a cruciform life? How do we become shaped in that way? Now, interestingly, this is on Paul's mind too as he is talking about this song. In fact, it is the topic that he tackles in the very next verse after he is done scribbling out the lyrics of his favorite song. He addresses the issue of how do we have our lives be shaped into the cross-like shape? He says this in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, just as you have always listened to me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence. What is he talking about here? Well, as I said, he's writing a letter back to people that he knows well, and here he's talking about a dynamic that is real similar to when the boss is standing behind you at work, you work really hard, and then when the boss leaves, you find out how interested you really are in doing the work. Will you really apply yourself to it in the absence of the boss? And Paul is saying, Philippians, you really applied yourself to the hard work of becoming crucified while I was there. And it is even more important now that I am gone for you to continue applying yourself to the work of taking on that cruciform shape. And so he goes on. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Of course, when we're talking about humility and making a big sacrifice for another person, there's always a little bit of fear and trembling. We all have that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, you are to work out your own salvation because it is God who is at work in you, is a little bit confusing. Who is doing the work? And here I think English is working against us because uh, there are two different words here in the Greek that would have been very clear to the original listeners. The work that is ascribed to human beings, the Greek word there takes on the connotation of seeing a task through until completion. Here in this context, it might sound more like 
hang on till the end or don't give up. God will do something in you, but your job is to hang on to the very end. And then the word in Greek that is ascribed as work to God, the work that God does, is a completely different word, which means something more like labor or energy or effort. And what this tells us is that the power for our spiritual transformation comes solely from God, and it is merely our job to hang on until he is done doing it. And here we really start to ask ourselves, what kind of clay do we intend to be? Do we intend to be clay that is soft and malleable and easily formed, or do we intend to be clay that is dry and rigid and impossible to shape? And here we might think of one of the iconic images of spiritual transformation in the Bible, that God is the great potter and we are merely the Play-Doh in his hands. And this is an idea that is all across scripture, but a great example comes from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, which says this, you, O Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. And we have to ask ourselves in our journey towards humility, when God comes to work on us and to form our lives in a different shape, what kind of clay are we going to be? Are we going to be soft and malleable and easily formed? Or are we going to be dry and rigid and difficult to shape? That is the choice that lies before us. Now, Let's talk about a bet I once placed on the 2015 Kansas City Royals. In March of 2015, I placed a bet for $5 in Las Vegas that the, the Royals would win the World Series that year. Have you ever just hit the jackpot in your life? Have you ever felt like something is happening to you and you just cannot believe your good luck? You are overwhelmed by your good fortune. I placed a $5 bet on the Royals to win the World Series that year, and in fact, they did win the World Series that year, and at the end of the year, I received a check in the mail for $80. Jackpot. And here I want to suggest at the end that humility will be a total jackpot for your relationships. And because relationships are the number one predictor of your happiness, humility also then becomes a jackpot for your happiness. I have one example here just from this last week. My daughter Margot, uh, I was putting her down to bed. We were going through the bedtime routine. And a little bit of backstory here is that Margot hates sleeping. She has always hated sleeping and she has always resisted bedtime. And so she was resisting bedtime on this particular night by asking if we could continue playing. Dad, can we play some more? Dad, can we sit down and play a little bit more here? And often on nights like that, I will appeal to my status as dad. And sometimes that's okay to do. Sometimes it's okay to say, no, I'm the dad, go to bed. Sometimes no is the right card to play here as a parent. But on this particular night, uh, I was really thinking about this passage. I was really praying through this passage. And I found myself wondering, what are Margot's interests in this moment? What is it that Margot really wants? And what popped into my head, which I found really unusual, because normally I would assume what she wants is to avoid bedtime as long as possible, but what popped into my head on this particular night was that Margot wants to connect with her dad. And so I said, yeah, let's sit down. We've got a few more minutes before bedtime. Let's sit down and play a little bit. 
And she has a, an Anna doll and an Elsa doll, but it's when they were kids. They're about four inches tall from Frozen 2. And so we put them down to sleep in a makeshift bed. And, and then they woke up and they went to school where they played with their best friend, who's a little Lego man. Uh, and then the little Lego man came home after school with Anna and Elsa, and then they called the Lego man's parents and asked if he could spend the night, and then they had a little sleepover in the makeshift bed. And then they woke up the next morning, and it turned out that the next morning, the little Lego man was getting married. And so we had to figure out who the bride was, and Anna and Elsa had to change their clothes to attend the wedding. And then we built uh, the chapel where they were getting married out of Legos, and Margot had such a great attitude the next day when Frankie smashed all of it. And this was just for me a, a moment I will never, ever forget. Connecting with my daughter in this really intimate and wonderful and playful way was such a profound gift to me. I walked out of her room after bedtime extremely happy, just really happy because we had gotten to connect in this way. And I was thinking in that moment that kind of the mechanism that makes humility of this kind so powerful for our relationships is that it forces you to slow down and understand the other person well enough to know what their interests are. You really have to listen in a whole new way if you are going to fully understand what someone else wants. And it is a very humble posture to say, I don't really know you even well enough to know what you want. And I need to sit down and think about it. It will be a totally life-changing thing for us to truly understand what our spouse wants or what our kids want or what our coworkers or our friends want. And it'll be a real humble process for us to sit down and think and listen on that level to someone else. And so here at the end, I want to make an ask of you. Bet on humility. This week, make this the week that you double down on learning humility. Maybe you take those four things from the checklist to do nothing of ambition or conceit, to think of others as more important than yourself, to look to others' interests before your own, to learn to think the way Jesus did. Maybe you take that and every day this week you pray through it and you say, Jesus, will you teach me these things? Or maybe it is something that will be a little bit more deeply ingrained in your life. 19th century Scottish preacher Andrew Murray said, God will inevitably bring two things into your life to teach you humility. One is a moment of humiliation. Maybe something really embarrassing will happen to you this week. Maybe it even ends up on the internet. You can pause and you can say, Jesus, will you use this to teach me humility? Will you use this to shape me to look a little bit more like you? And the other thing that Andrew Murray says is inevitable about your life, and I personally guarantee this will happen to you this week. He said that the other thing that God will use to teach you humility is someone who vexes and tries you. Someone vexing will enter your life, and you can pause right then in that moment and say, Jesus, will you help me to think of this person as more important than me? Will you help me to look to their interests before I look to my own? And this is what it will look like for us to learn to think like Jesus. This is what it will look like for us to put ourselves into God's hand as Plato, that it is soft and malleable and ready to be formed. And that is my hope for you this week. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you love us, the way that you think of us as so important, the way that you refuse to leave us in the shape that we currently are. 
God, thank you for your humility. Lord, all of us here, we ask you this week to start to teach us some humility. Lord, all of us here, maybe we've been following Jesus for many decades or maybe we're here for the first time, but God, we ask you to start shaping our lives. Lord, show us what it will mean for us to put ourselves into your hands to be soft and malleable and ready to be formed. God, we ask you to work in us, work in our hearts. Teach us what it means to be your kind of humble. Lord, we put our lives into your hands. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. Our hope this week is that this message both inspired you and helped you connect to God better. We also hope that you have several questions coming out of this week. And so if that's the case, please shoot us a note at menlo.church. And we hope to see you next week.